So Paul starts out chapter two. He starts out chapter two describing what it looks like to be dead in our sin. And then he follows by describing what it means to be alive in Christ. This is what uh, Pastor Ross last week described as bad news, good news. And that's exactly what we see here. We see the bad news outside of Jesus Christ. The condition of our heart is one of hopelessness, isn't it? It's one of, of, of eternal damnation. It's one where we don't have a secure uh, uh, hope for our future because of who we are outside of Christ Jesus. But knowing who Christ is, and many of us in this room today have the privilege of knowing Jesus, but knowing who Jesus is, we also know that he is the hope and the salvation for our hearts and our souls and for our lives. And so we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, which is a passage we're gonna look at next week. But here's the, here's the wonderful thing that I love about this is that Paul, as he starts out and he says, here's the bad condition of man's heart, of man's life, but God changes all of that by making us alive together in Christ Jesus. He begins to paint this beautiful picture for us of exactly who God is. We begin to see the beauty and the beautiful nature of, of who Christ is, of who our God is. And, and I love that because it's not that he just offers a few words, but he, he really begins to paint this very theological uh, picture, this image for us that as we read through this passage, we, we just can't help but fall more and more in love with God because of what he has accomplished in our life. And so we see this, and as Paul does this, as he writes this passage, as he begins to share the truth with us concerning who God is, he reveals something that's very important to us. As it relates to our deadness, Paul begins to reveal God's personal intervention in our life. You see, the Bible is very clear that while we are yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But the the, the, the truth that we need to understand there is that while we were yet still sinners. You see, as we live our life in, in a place of sin and, and transgressions against God, as we live our, place, our, our life outside of Christ Jesus, we are living our life also really not even aware of what God can do and wants to do for us. We're just living our life as, as, as Ross was describing last week. We're living, following the courses of this world. We're following after Satan. We're following after our own pleasures of the flesh. And so we're living our life just with our minds not at all uh, attentive toward what God wants to do in our life. But then we see something that's really amazing. The first thing that, that Paul reveals to us is this personal interaction that we have from God, this personal intervention, if you will, from God. Because what we see is we're here, we're minding our own business, we're living in our sinfulness, we're living in our trespasses, but God takes the initiative and he steps in. And I love that because he's revealing to us that God is the one who initiates 
this salvation. And over and over and over throughout scripture, we see these phrases, but God. We see where people are living lives where their intention is one of evil, but God comes in and he makes that situation one for good. We see this, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where we see Joseph talking about his brothers. He says this to them. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so all that the brothers were doing against Joseph during this time in his life, this, the, these brothers who were just really wicked in, in their ways, they were meaning harm for Joseph, but he comes in and he testifies, doesn't he? He says, but you see, God, but God had other plans, right? God had other plans. God stepped in. When you guys were wanting to do this against me, God stepped in and he rescued me. God stepped in and he had another plan for me. God stepped in and he had other things in mind than what you had in mind. And I love that because if, if you go back to that passage, if we go back to the Old Testament and many different ones, we see a lot of things that are happening in the Old Testament that we don't typically see in the New Testament. We see wars being waged and stuff like that really taking place. But I was thinking about that and thinking about also how often in our own life, as we live out our life, we find ourselves with people who, who maybe intentionally or unintentionally may cause harm to us or, or want to do evil toward us, and, and yet we stand here in Christ Jesus, stand here, new creations in Christ Jesus, having to deal with this in our life, these attacks that seem to come from, from enemies in our life where people want to harm us or do us wrong, and we, we see this coming on, and we have the ability and the mindset to be able to stand firm in the promises of God and say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to even respond to that because God has come in and made me alive in Christ Jesus. I don't have to entertain the, the things that people want to do against me because I've got a greater Savior and his name is Jesus and I'm going to rely on him. Amen? And so we live our life, we live our life knowing that even though other people, I mean, we live in a world today, there are people in our world today that would just assume to do nothing more or nothing greater than to just destroy Christianity. But God has other plans, amen? I love that. I love that about God. You see how he's painting this picture of, of how God is just so much more wonderful. I, I love what Luke was saying about Jesus. He says in Acts 13, verse 29 and 30, he says, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. You remember Jesus was crucified on the cross because they wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. And so they, 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 they shout out, crucify him. The Roman soldiers take him out on a cross. They nail him on a cross. And it's on the cross that he died. It's on the cross that his blood was spilled. And they took him down from that cross as a dead man. And they threw him in a tomb, right? They threw him in a place of burial. And they thought that they had wiped their hands clean of what? Of this thing called Christianity, right? But look at what Luke says here. He says this, uh, reading in this passage, he says, they took him down from that cross, they laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God, you see there? But God raised him from the dead, therefore giving him what? Life. He gave him life that we in return could have life in Christ Jesus, amen? And so Jesus 
conquered sin. He conquered death by being raised from the grave. And so we see all these different plans that God has when the world had a different plan, right? The world crucified him. The world said, we're gonna do away with him. We're gonna put an end to this thing called Christianity. There will be no more followers of Christ Jesus, but God had a different plan, amen? And he raised him from the dead. You see how important this is? You see how powerful this is, how profound this is to think about how God comes in at different stages of our life and he just changes everything, right? And so we see this taking place here. We see this beginning to to really uh, come about over and over and over, these personal interventions from God. Here's what I kind of took away from this I think is really sort of incredible. But where man is unable, God is able. Amen? How many of you believe with that? Where man is unable, God is able. Amen? See, man, it may be impossible with, with man, but God can do all things, right? Nothing is impossible with God. God always makes the first move because the dead is incapable of making the first move. And here we see where Paul is describing humanity as dead outside of Christ Jesus. But God changed everything. Amen? So we see this very personal interaction, this very personal intervention. But not only does Paul reveal this personal intervention, but he also shows us God's loving Intervention. In fact, as we read on through this passage, we begin to see the reasons why God would even intervene anyway. I mean, why is it that God would, would uh, save us? Why is it that God would, would, would care for us? You know, what, what, are the, what are the reasons why God sent his son to die on a cross that we may have life and have it abundantly? Why would God do that? Paul answers this as he continues to write to the Ephesians He says this in verse four. He says, but God, being rich in mercy. Let me just stop there for just a moment. How many of us, and you don't have to respond to this, but how many of us have ever been to a place in our life where where we just sort of look to God for mercy in our life? We look to him. Maybe it's over sin in our life. Maybe it's over, you know, as we we pray those prayers of of repentance and confession to God, and we, we, we pray and we pray hoping that God is merciful. Well, what we know, what the Bible is clear on is that God is rich in mercy. How many of you are thankful that God is rich in mercy? That he has a treasure of mercy. He is more merciful than he could, than we could ever hope to be. And so Paul doesn't want to leave that out. He's speaking about salvation. He's talking about salvation. He says, you are dead in your condition outside of Christ Jesus, but you got to remember that God is rich in mercy. And then he goes on. So he's rich in mercy, but he goes on. He says, because of the great love with which he has loved us. You see that? So he says this, he says he's rich in mercy, but the reason he's rich in mercy, the reason that God is so merciful to us is because he loves us. And he doesn't just love us a little bit, he loves us unconditionally. He loves us so much that he would send his son to die on that cross, wouldn't he? And so here we see where Paul really begins to drive home the reason behind why God would intervene so personally with us. But God, he came to our rescue. But God, he stepped in. But God, he restored our life. But why? 
because he loves us, because he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy because of the reason that he loves us so much. And so here we see this begin to unfold and we begin to understand. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I looked at this verse, verse four, and as I just read it over and over and over, I just, I couldn't get over it. I just, I, I just wanted it to sink in, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And then it became very obvious to me. Christ didn't die for me because I was lovely. Christ died for me because he loved me. Christ didn't die for me because I was lovely. I wasn't at a place where he said, okay, you finally got there, I'm gonna save you. No, in fact, the Bible says that while I was yet still in my sin, Christ died for me. So God wasn't waiting for me to become a loving person. He saved me that he could make me into a loving person. And he saved me because he loved me. And so here we see this passage as we look at this. You know, uh, I, I just want to be a little bit transparent with you here this morning and, and just talk about some of the weaknesses that I've lived with all of my life. You know, I grew up with two very loving parents. I had a, a mother and a father, and they both loved me, and they loved you know, their, all their children. They loved my sisters. I guess they did. I know they loved me. I'm not sure if they loved them or not, but if they're watching this sermon, my sister told me the other day, I started listening to your sermon, so I'm probably in trouble now, but anyway... But they loved, they loved us, you know. They, they, they had this great love. It was obvious they loved us, you know. But they divorced when we were very young. And, and my dad moved to Statesboro. My mom was living in America. And, and, uh, and so we were very young. I was in kindergarten when all this went down. And, and, and what seemed to be the, the norm for us in our, in our childhood was that whoever was, uh, you know, had the best uh, ability to take care of us, that's who we would live with. And so very early on in the first and second grade, I lived with my mom and then some, some things kind of happened in her life. My dad was in better shape to take care of us. So we, we moved and transitioned to Statesboro and we lived there. People would always ask me, it says, where are you from? And I'd say, well, I've got two hometowns, you know, and because I'd go from Statesboro to America. So every year it's just kind of back and forth. And, and, and the thing is that I never doubted the love that, that my parents had for me, but at the same time, I didn't recognize just the adverse effects that it was having on my life and on my sister's life, having to move from place to place. Because you see, whenever we moved, even if we had lived there the year or two before, when we would move back to this town, we were still the outsiders because our friends had changed. We, we, did, we had to start all over. Every time we moved, every time we made this transition, we would have to start over trying to make new friends. And over the years, I became very insecure I became very insecure and it just, it really, it really began to take root. This insecurity began to take root. Just a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to share with Celebrate Recovery on a Monday night. And, and during that time, I was sharing with them three of my big hangups that sort of developed in my heart because, because as a young man who was living in this place and these insecurities were really taking root in his life, it, it began to affect me in a way that that, that I, I just wasn't uh, able to really handle it. The first biggie in my life, the first big hangup that sort of developed in my heart was, was this reality that I had a very low self-worth, a very low self-worth. I remember having this conversation with my dad 
I had this conversation one day and I was just, I was crying. I don't know if he saw me crying or if I, I went to him. I can't remember that, but I do remember the conversation where I was just weeping. I was just so discouraged and so depressed. And, and as I was crying, my dad said, what's wrong? And I said, I, you know, I remember just communicating to him that I just felt worthless. And this was later in life. I mean, I was uh, about to graduate high school and I, I just didn't feel like I had anything to offer to the world. In my life, I just had this sense of worthlessness. It was a low self-worth in my life. I didn't feel like I had anything to contribute. I read recently that 70% of our teens today deal with low self-worth. And here's the, here's the catch. Almost nearly 100% of those teenagers that deal with a low sense of, of, low sense of worth, they carry that into their adult life. Well, I was one of those statistics. I carried that with me. And it had a profound effect in my life. I just always struggled with wondering if I had anything. I remember telling my dad, I don't even know if I'll be able to get a job because I'm not good at anything. And it was a sad time in my life. The other thing that really just, uh, really was a, a hang up in my life was a, a fear of rejection. Now, I know when you hear that, and especially as you think about me being a teenager, uh, and I've shared with you before that I was, I was always very shy growing up, and so that was no doubt a part of my insecurity. But what came along with that shyness was the fear of rejection. And typically when we hear that, we think of somebody who maybe is scared to ask a girl out on a date. And certainly that was a part of my life. I mean, I, I was someone who wouldn't approach different people and ask, you know, I remember my sister's coming, hey, you need to ask so-and-so to go to the prom. She wants to go with, you know, stuff like that. I'd be like, no, you know. And it was just such a fear of rejection. I was just scared to death of rejection. But it wasn't just that because the fear of rejection would carry over into school as well. How many of you have ever, and you don't have to respond to this rhetorical question again, but how many of us have ever stood before a classroom and gave a presentation? It seemed like with all these insecurities I had that there was a teacher every week saying, okay, this is your assignment, go home, do this, present it to the class. And that was my greatest fear. I couldn't stand it because I felt like if I did that, then, then, then it would just, you know, everybody would laugh at my presentation. I already felt worthless, so now I had this fear of rejection. You know, it affected my relationships. It affected everything. I found it very difficult to find friends. The last thing that I want to sort of reveal to you that I struggled with in my teenage years was also a need for the approval of others. It was one of these things where uh, I just felt like I had to, I, I was, my life was not validated unless somebody said, great job, or I'm proud of you. My dad was another one that I constantly looked toward. I would constantly look to him and I would, I would literally do things in front of him hoping he would look at me and say, hey, that's cool. That, my dad wasn't that kind of guy, so rarely did he say it. But it was something I was always living for. All my life, I was living hoping my dad would look at me and say, son, I'm proud of you. I'm really proud of you. And so these were hangups in my life. These were real struggles in my life. And these are struggles that even today you have to wrestle with. These things that you carry with you all your life. You have your hangups. You have the things that you struggle with. And maybe some of those are the same things. But the reality is we don't have to live like that. And can I tell you from experience that Jesus changes everything. Amen? Jesus changes everything. You see, the reality is there was a time in my life when I was living a life 
outside of Christ Jesus, and my life could best be described as one who walked in their sins, walked in their trespasses, and as I lived out my life in that place, I felt dead inside. I had no purpose, and in fact, I was dead. But God changed everything, amen? But God, you see, before I was ever thinking of him, he sent his son to die on a cross that I could have life and have that life abundantly. And I can have that life because he was raised from the dead and he lives today. That's how I can have the life that I have in Christ. I love the fact that Paul says in the passage, he said that we are made alive in Christ Jesus, that we would walk together with him, that community with Christ Jesus. So you see, here's the thing, these struggles that we that we face, these things that we have to deal with. We don't have to live like that. We don't have to live. I mean, we may wrestle from time to time, but there's a greater truth that we can stand on, and that is the truth that we are alive in Christ Jesus. Let me read verse five to you real quickly. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is receiving that which you don't deserve. I don't deserve it, but God gave it anyway. Why? Because he loved us. He says he get, we've been saved by grace and raised us, uh, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God intervenes in our life and he brings out, he brings us out of spiritual death and wrath, but much more than that, much more than that. Being alive in Christ God also brings us out of, out of spiritual deceit and deception. The lies of the enemy, we don't have to believe because we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. The lies of an enemy who wants to destroy us, we don't have to believe those because we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. I was dead. I was dead as I could be. But God changes everything. Paul once wrote, and this is how I want to sort of end this message today. Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, a young pastor who Paul was mentoring, who Paul was coaching, who Paul was discipling. And this young man, he placed in a position where he could minister to God's people. And he challenged him to raise up elders and to make disciples just as you would expect Paul to challenge him. But Paul was one day writing to this young man, this young pastor, and as he's writing to him, he, he shares all kinds of tidbits that's gonna help him in being a pastor. These are sort of pastoral things that he's, he's sharing with him. But I love what we see when Paul begins to write of the things that used to be versus the things that are. And this is what I want to leave you with, this last passage here, Titus 3, verses 3 through 6, where Paul says these words. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We were foolish. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I can just tell you this, just again, continuing to be transparent. There are many days where I have felt foolish with my life, Amen. Uh, Josh is shaking his head, yes. So I'm gonna call you out, brother, too. I'm not in this alone, am I, brother? There's been times in our life where we just did foolish things, right? We lived our life. We were living as a dead man walking. But Paul says this, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish. 
We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Listen to this. Hated by others and hating one another. But God changes everything, doesn't he? But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says to this young pastor, he says, Timothy, excuse me, that was another one. Titus, he says, Titus, there was a day when we used to act like the world. There was a day when if you looked at our life, it looked more like we were following Satan than Jesus. He says, when you look at our life, you see a life where we even pursued the passions of our own flesh. But he says, God came in and he rescued us. God came in and he changed us. He gave us a new life, a life that is alive and full in Christ Jesus, a life that is together with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he expounds on this. He says, this is who we used to be, but this is who we are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to close out the service. And here's the reality. I know that there's some of you here today that probably walked into this place and maybe you've been coming here for a while, but for whatever reason, you feel less alive inside. Maybe some of you have walked in here today and you say, Pastor David, I'll, uh, you know, I get what the word says, but on the inside, I feel more dead than I do feel alive. Maybe some of you came in here today and you're struggling through issues of insecurity. Maybe you're struggling through issues like the fear of rejection. Maybe you feel worthless in this world. Maybe you feel like you don't measure up. I know that's the way we can feel because I've been there. I've done that. I've lived a life where I never felt like I measured up. I lived a life where I was always trying to please other people. I lived a life in that pain where I did not feel alive. I felt dead. And even though I look back on my life and I realize that God has had me all this time just sort of leading and guiding me to a place where I would come to this place of understanding that, that Christ is my everything and that Christ died on the cross, that I would have life and not live this dead life, this, this deadless life that I feel. Not deadless, dead life. Deadless would be alive, wouldn't it? Some of you English majors out there are just correcting me in your mind. I know you are. So I had to clarify. We don't have to live like that, do we? We don't have to live like that because God changes everything. That might have been who we were. But God, through his mercy and his forgiveness and his love, he comes sweeping into our life. And this is the beautiful thing that Paul is revealing to us. He comes sweeping into our life and he changes everything. And he gives us a life that is full. And he gives us a life that is filled with joy. And he gives us a life that is filled with contentment. And 
he raises us up out of that discouragement. Maybe some of you walked in here this morning and you don't feel all the warm fuzzies that I feel. Maybe you don't feel the joy that I feel this morning. That may be true, but I can tell you from experience and also because the word of God reveals this to us, that Jesus is the answer for all of that. He is the answer for all of that. So this morning, maybe your greatest act of worship is the band comes out and they lead us in this last song that you would come to a place of recognizing that you need to just surrender your life to Christ. Maybe you're already saved, maybe you're not, but surrender is something that can happen at all stages of our life. That when we just give our life over and say, God, I am dependent on you and I am relying on you because that's what I need more than anything. I wanna experience the full life. I wanna experience the joy that comes in knowing you. I wanna feel alive and together with you. So in just a moment, maybe this last song won't just be the last song. Maybe it'll be the song where Jesus changes everything for you. Or maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor David, I feel more alive than I've ever had in my life. That God is moving in my life. I'm excited about my future. I'm just so thankful for what God's doing. Yes, I have rainy days. Yes, I have dark days. Yes, I have bad days. But but I I know I'm resting in the reality that God is, is everything that he says he is. And I believe that with all of my heart. But maybe you know someone who doesn't have the joy that you have. So maybe today your greatest act of worship is to pray for that individual. To pray for that friend. To pray for that co-worker. Pray for that family member. The reality is every one of us here today have an opportunity to respond to what God is calling us to do. Let me just share this with you. You may not know this, but we have a prayer team that meets in the first service and the second. You realize we have a prayer team that is gathering together while we're gathering in here. They're gathering out there and they're praying for every one of us in this room. They're praying for me as a pastor. They're praying for our worship team. They're praying for the children's ministry. They're praying for everybody that Christ would be known and that God would sweep across our hearts and our souls And that we would see a beautiful picture of who Jesus really is. What Paul is saying in these words is more beautiful than any mosaic, than any painting, by any piece of art. What he is proclaiming as truth about who Christ is should thrill our hearts and stir our souls calls us to believe and trust in him like we never have before.